Welcome to the table. We are blessed to see all of your wonderful faces and I'm just excited to be here um, another Monday evening to get oil for our lamps as we fellowship over God's word. Anyhow, I was about to ask Jed if he would share with those that are new with us um, a little bit about Bread for the, Bread for the Journey and uh, what we're doing here so you have a better understanding of our format and um, what's going on. Thanks, Krista. Good evening, everyone. Uh, great for those of you that have been with us uh, for the past few weeks, uh, walking through the Word together. And for those that are just joining us for the first time, wanted to provide a quick overview. Um, you can download the Chronological Bible Study on touroftruth.com. It's a PDF. And you just read through three or four chapters of the Bible every day. And then every Monday night, we will review the last week's readings together and provide a format, a platform for us all to come together um, and process what we've been learning. Um, and either myself or Krista or Pastor Sylvia will be uh, kind of facilitating these conversations and we'll just spend 10 or 15 minutes kind of laying out a some questions and a few thoughts from the readings. And then we'll just be uh, providing an opportunity for everyone to dialogue together and process what the Lord is saying uh, in his word. And this really comes from a, a desire from all of us just to, to kind of turn out the noise that's all around us uh, in society and in culture and to dive into the word. Uh, and it's based on the, the name bread for the journey comes from the idea that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so putting a, a, a premium on hearing from the Lord and familiarizing ourselves with his story and his word is kind of the idea of this Bible study together. So we're blessed to go on the journey together. It's been a rich few weeks already. And so really looking forward to hearing what uh, the Lord's given Krista uh, to kind of launch us in tonight. So we're in the book of Exodus. We've been through Genesis. We've been through the book of Job. And the chronological part of the study is that these are, we're studying the books of the Bible as they were written in history. So the earliest books we're reading first. So. We're into Exodus today, and uh, with that, all that being said, want to just welcome everyone in with a word of prayer, and want to ask Pastor Sylvia if you would pray for us, and then Krista will be sharing a few thoughts and laying out the framework of our discussion for tonight's study. Um, in addition to these weekly sessions, you can find daily thoughts on the daily readings at Tour of Truth. Uh, dot com as well. They're just called breadcrumbs. And so if you want to follow along, you know, five to 10 minute little nuggets of thoughts that we have as we're reading through the daily sections, you can do that too. And 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 that'll be a, kind of an accompany, uh, accompaniment to your own study uh, as you go through the Bible. So God bless you guys and looking forward to tonight. Over to you, Pastor Sylvia. All right. Thank you, Jit. Appreciate it. What I want us to do, because I know that some are still running in, some just made it through the door and all of that. Just take an opportunity to exhale. And in exhaling, take an opportunity to reflect and bring your mind into Christ Jesus. So I want you just to breathe out for a moment. And we're so grateful that you did run through the door, whatever it was, in order for you to connect. And some are still bursting in. So we want to just take that time for, again, centering our focus and every thought on he is the Lord. 
He is the Lord our God. I want you to begin to just see his majesty. See how great and wonderful he is. Begin to see how he brought you through every moment and every second of your day. That there is none like him. None like him. Oh, begin to focus on his great love for you and this wonderful, magnificent day. Focus on that he is the Lord. He is the Lord, our God, strong and mighty. He is your divine enabler, the one that enables you to do all things. He is the one that sees you in every situation and all the billions and billions of people and all the things that are going on. You are his direct focus. He knows you, knows the number of hairs on your head. And from the recesses of your soul, can you just begin to say, you are the Lord. You are the Lord. See, we're inviting him and his presence to come in among us because without his presence, we don't want to go any further. Without him, we cannot and we invite him to come so that we can receive his revelation, his wisdom, and his knowledge. You are the Lord. You are the Lord our God, strong and mighty. Blessed be your name. Thank you, Lord God, for you said two or more joined together there in the midst are you. So we thank you for coming. Lead God and direct us. Fill us with your spirit once again as you fill us with your wisdom with your knowledge and with your understanding. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear you and your word like never before so that we can give you all the praise, all the honor and the glory. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you, Jesus. Blessed be your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Sylvia. Well, I'm going to share my screen um, here in a moment, but I just wanted to say, you know, we just finished up the book of Job um, in our last week's session, and this week we're opening up into the book of Exodus. Um, you know, so we had that, that gap here between Genesis, which normally would go Genesis, Exodus, and so forth, and we put Job in the middle, and it was because, you know, Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible, and so as uh, Jed was saying, we're doing a chronological read, but the story that we're picking back up here to, with Exodus, it is the history of um, our faith. It is the history of uh, the Israelites, and it's God's history book. It's God's story. And so um, this is what we're going through when we unpack it. And there is quite a lot to unpack, which is why the breadcrumb videos that Jed mentioned are, are, I believe, truly beneficial as we journey along so we can break things down that are um, pretty significant in some bite-size, uh, five-minute um, increments daily. But as we uh, go through what we'll unpack tonight, there'll be a time for us to, to process it and um, discuss it afterwards, and that's participatory. But I'm going to go ahead and pull up some slides, um, and I want to kind of just carry you through an overview to get us started in conversation. So bear with me a moment so I can share the screen. Okay, 
So the word Exodus, I wanted to just start with that. It actually means going out. And it's basically, this book is basically about an escape story. Um, The Israelites, they started, you know, in Egypt when uh, Jacob was there um, as the father and then his 12 sons. And, you know, Joseph ends up, we go, we already went through the story of Joseph, but he ends up being basically second in command. in that land because of the famine. And that's what brought the Israelites there. And so they're in Egypt being um, protected by God, you know, uh, with provision and food being provided for them through God's plan. And so he moves them during the time of famine. But what we're going to see is that God did not intend for them to stay there. They were there for a season, but it was time to go home. And so This father, Jacob, and the 12 sons, now 400 years later, because that's where we're picking up. So, you know, Genesis ends, and then there's 400 years that go past, and we don't have the information in all of that. We just know that now there are 2 million of them, and they escape through the desert. And so that in itself is remarkable. And we find um, some of God's greatest acts in the Old Testament, and many which are in this book. And to this day, uh, the Jews will still celebrate one major event that we read about, and Jed spoke about on one of the breadcrumb videos this past week, Um, but we read about it every year in Exodus, if you're following the Passover. And so it's this Passover feast that the Jews will continue to do throughout all generations because God commanded them to do it. And so it's obvious that the New Testament was deeply influenced by the book of Exodus as well, because we see words in the New Testament like covenant, um, the blood, blood of the lamb, uh, Passover, and leaven. We see those words, which are all words that we're finding here in this book of Exodus. And this book is telling us amazing things about God uh, through what he did you know, for his people. And so we can see it and we can say, he's my God too, you know? And so if he did it for them, he can do it for me. And that's true. And so the fundamental truth that comes out in the book of Exodus is that God is a redeemer. And there's even a greater reason why this book is relevant for us today. And it's that Jesus was alive before he was born as a baby in the manger. He was consciously alive um, as the son of God from all eternity, the Bible tells us. He was alive at the time of the Exodus, and he was involved in the Exodus. And that's what I really want um, to to ask you to just hone in on is some of these things that we see in scripture, you know, the Bible shows us that he followed them all the way. And again, we will see Jesus throughout the book of Exodus, but we see his reflection in the events. We see a Passover lamb that was killed and the lamb's blood used to protect the people from death. And Jesus himself, he said, he said, search the old Testament for it bears witness to me. And let me give you a couple scriptures. Jesus said to them in John chapter eight, verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And, you know, in John 1, 1, it says in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And so God is the word. This Bible we're reading, which is the reason it is alive and active, it is Jesus himself. You know, it comes alive because he's ministering to us through his spirit in his word, but he has always existed. And then we see in Revelation chapter one, verse 17 and 18, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. This is John speaking. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and hates. He has always been. He's the first and the last. He was throughout the Old Testament. And so here in the New Testament, we have a very clear scripture on this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. I just think this is amazing. And not only that, just to take note here, that if, you know, even when we have these discussions over baptism, we see that God made a provision. He made a way for his people to come in the way he intended because he's saying he baptized them all as they went through the Red Sea. So we see, you know, that um, that God's way is the way. And if he is asking us to, uh, to do something in a certain order, he's also going to provide those opportunities. And so he provided it for his people right from the onset. And so I want you to think about why God allowed them to get into slavery. And then into a situation where genocide could be committed. Because remember, Pharaoh decreed that all Hebrew boys were to be killed. And, and the reason, I think, is that it was his justice. They shouldn't have been there. It, it's God, God's justice that chastises. They had gone to Egypt because of that famine in Israel. And God allowed them to go and get food and be provided for but they never came back and it was his justice that led them to get in trouble but more than that it's his mercy when he allows trouble to come when we've wandered out of the place where he can bless us and I've known this personally that when you step out of God's will and you wander away and you get content and stay there God will allow you to get in trouble he'll allow trouble to come to get your attention and so I love that he does that. I, personally, I love that he's done that to me. He's basically gently first saying, you know, come out, leave the attractions that are holding you there and come back to where I can bless you. And this is what chapter one says to me about God, that it was his justice to allow them to suffer for staying there. But God's mercy said this suffering is going to make you want to come back. So if they hadn't been made slaves, they might have never followed Moses into the desert. They were comfortable, is what we're the, the picture that we are given of their life in Egypt before slavery. They were doing fine. So sometimes in his mercy, God will let us suffer, so we'll want to get back. And another thing that I see is a picture of Satan in Pharaoh and Jesus in Moses. And if there's one text... That's the theme of this book. It's that God says, let my people go. And Satan says, I won't. 
I'm not going to let them go. I'm hanging on to them. And again, God says, let my people go. But God can break the power of Pharaoh and of Satan. And Egypt is a picture of sin. That's the parallel we see here when we're reading through this. And in those days, it was a land that was very self-indulgent. The Egyptians were affluent. And the people of God, you know, before slavery, as I said, they found themselves themselves in affluence, in prosperity, with plenty to wear and eat. It was so nice that they forgot God. That's, that's essentially what we're seeing, why slavery was allowed. And so moving on to um, how we get to Moses, in Egypt, there's a river called the Nile. And the river was worshipped as a god. They would pray to the river, river Nile, and Pharaoh had actually decreed that the Hebrew baby boys were to be thrown into the river, which was essentially, you know, he was killing them, but they were giving them to their God to destroy them is essentially what they were doing since this was a God that they worshiped. And when Moses was born, his mother, she decided to keep him against that decree. So she hid him, and then she decided to put him in the very place where the Egyptian God of the Nile River took babies. And so she trusted her God with him. She made a little boat with pitch and tar and put him in the river. And then we see one of the most ironic things of all, and it's that Moses is rescued by the Pharaoh's own daughter. You know, she knew he was a Hebrew, you know, but they believed that the river was a goddess of fertility so I'm just imagining that probably she thought when she saw this baby coming towards her in a basket, she might have thought that it was her God of the river answering her prayers because she took, she, she took the baby. And then she looked for a Hebrew woman to nurse the child because she knew he was a Hebrew. But she looks for a Hebrew woman to nurse the child and ends up paying Moses's own mother to take care of him. And that's exactly how God works. You know, how, how he can orchestrate circumstances so the most unlikely people come to your aid. But this was also God manipulating history for his own purposes. He, uh, you know, thought this baby needed to be preserved too because he had a plan for Moses. And it's interesting to consider that Moses was brought up as a prince. He was given the best education. He was raised in the Pharaoh's house. And then you know, when Moses was about 40, 40 years old, he went um, uh, to see the Hebrew people. He wanted to uh, know these people that he really belonged to. And until then, he hadn't been near them. He'd been told that he was rescued from them. So he was brought up in the palace and tr he was trained in Egyptian manners and customs. And so he sees at some point in the story, we see that he sees a Hebrew person being treated poorly by an Egyptian, and he ends up killing the Egyptian. He thought it was in secret. So he didn't think anybody saw him, and he buries the body in the sand, and he goes back to the palace. But Pharaoh heard about it, and now Moses had to go on the run. And so at this stage, the Hebrews, you know, they, they wouldn't accept Hebrew, uh, Moses as their leader. So he wanders into the Sinai desert, and he becomes a shepherd for the next 40 years. It's a long time. God was preparing him, 40 years. And so 40 years, you know, he thought he was somebody, most likely, you know, he was living as a prince, prince. but now he was spending 40 years learning 
that he was actually nobody, far from God, far from his people. And to me, there's a lesson here for us that God will only exalt those who have been humbled. You know, sometimes we can actually do damage by rushing off to do things that we're not ready for yet. And Moses, he was alone in the desert. I see something else there, and that's that, you know, I don't think that you'll ever really do anything for God in public unless God can get you alone, because that's where it begins. And when God called Moses to lead the people of Israel, he tried to get out of it five times. He'd been hasty at 40, but he was too reluctant at 80. And can you believe that? He was 80 years old when God called him. And to me, like, praise God. You know, that just says that there's no retirement plan in the kingdom. Like there's just work for you to do all the way till it's time to go home. But many people have said, um, including me, who am I? You know, who am I, Lord, that you would use me? I'm just an ordinary person. You know, he was a prince, but now he felt like he was a shepherd, which is what he'd been doing for those 40 years. So to an Egyptian back then, being a shepherd was a detestable thing. And it's good to feel inadequate if it drives you to God, but it's wrong to feel inadequate if it drives us away from God's work. It can actually be false modesty, excessive self-deprecation, I guess. And it's, you know, that's kind of like pride in reverse. But one sort of pride will scramble for the front seat and the other scrambles for the back. And the point I think that we see in this is that if God calls you to do something and you say, I'm not the one for this, God may say, I know you're not. That's why I chose you. And that's what we see with Moses because he kept trying to tell him, not me, God, not, you know, and all these excuses he had. But this is what the Lord had to say to him. I will tell you who you are. <laughs> You're the one whom I am with. Hallelujah. He's saying, I'm the one for this. God's saying, I'm the one. You're not the one. I'll be with you. Moses in his initial obstinance was questioning two things, God's ability and God's authority and telling him to go. But finally, you know, we know Mo Moses realized there was no option that God had called him. But we also see that although, you know, Moses had feared the people that maybe the Israelites wouldn't accept him because of his stuttering and just all these excuses he had, maybe they wouldn't accept him as a leader. So God did end up assigning his brother Aaron to be a spokesperson for him. But we saw also that God was angry when Mo because Moses wouldn't um, just do what he's calling him to do. But he did end up giving him a provision by, with his brother Aaron. So they, Aaron and Moses, they go to meet with Pharaoh because, you know, God's wanting them to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And we see that words go back and forth between Moses and Aaron and Pharaoh. And Moses was caught between three voices. The key word in the dialogue was I. Pharaoh said it, Moses said it, and God said it. And it always depends on which I that you listen to. It comes from people who oppose you, your own fear and doubts, and it comes from God. Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And basically, Pharaoh said, you know, why should I listen to you, essentially, is what he's saying. Is that so? Who, do, who is Yahweh that I should listen to him and let Israel go? I don't know Yahweh, and I won't let Israel go. And so through Pharaoh, we can see Satan saying, 
I'm not going to let them go. I'm not going to let this man go. I'm not going to let this woman go. Do you know who he thought he was, Pharaoh? He thought he was the great I am. That's who he thought he was. And so whenever you try to help liberate people from, from their slavery and get them redeemed, somebody will say, I'll not let them go. That's the first capital I. The second I rose up with Moses. He was so upset because the result of his first visit to Pharaoh made the situation 10 times worse for Israel. You know, the, they, Pharaoh made the, their work 10 times harder than it had been. So uh, Moses had actually tried to get out of the responsibility already. And now Moses is asking God, why did you ever send me? I mean, he's actually upset. Like, what? why? You know, if, if you're going to just make it worse on the people. But then comes the third I. And it was God's reply to Moses. I am the Lord. And I have made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I have heard my people. And I will come and get them out. So here is God saying, I made a promise. And I'm going to keep it. And to me, I see this is where we have to also stop and consider the eyes that we're listening to and evaluate which eye is going to govern our life. That was the question facing Moses. Is it the eye of opposition, the eye of fear, or the eye of almighty God? And so I praise the Lord that Moses, he finally trusted God. But what about Pharaoh? Four times Pharaoh actually professed repentance. Four times we see that Pharaoh said, I'm sorry. On four occasions, he asked God to forgive him. So here's the question. Then why didn't Pharaoh find salvation when he was sorry and contrite, full of remorse? Twice he said, I have sinned. And he asked Moses to pray for him. Yet he was never forgiven. And I believe it's because his words didn't match his heart. He said it, but he didn't really believe it. His mind was cunning. All the time, he was thinking of a way of getting the Israelites back again. In between several of the plagues, he said, I've sinned. I'll let you go. But worship within the borders of our land. Moses said, no. Pharaoh said, well, then worship near the land just beyond the border. Moses said, no. Then Pharaoh said, I'm sorry. I'll let you go. But leave your wives and children here. He was thinking that they'd come back for their wives. But Moses said, no, we need to take them with us. Pharaoh says, then go, but leave your possessions here. Leave your flock and your herds behind. Moses said, no, God wants everything. We have a similar plot. Satan says, you can go, but don't get too far into this Christian thing. Don't be too religious. Don't become a fanatic. You can go to church or Bible study on Sunday, but come back to me, you know, through the week for a good time. He wants to keep us within arm's reach. So we keep coming back. And even though Pharaoh was cunning in his mind. We also find something profound in Exodus. At the beginning of the chapters, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. To me, I just found that to be incredible when I first read it. And I had to scour the scriptures to understand like what in the world? God is hardening someone's heart? But what we really see through this is that God demonstrates his justice through those who have already hardened their own hearts. And five times it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, but then God hardened Pharaoh's hearts, heart several times. So God's message was, Pharaoh is punishment for you. I'll harden your heart now. 
You won't come to me, so now I'm gonna use you as a demonstration of my power, not my mercy, because Pharaoh had gone too far. And I think we see that here. We see it with the Israelites. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. There is a limit, you know, to God's mercy. Like, you know, he is compassionate and he is loving and he is slow to anger, but he's a God of justice. And there is a day that justice and judgment come. And we're awaiting that now. When Jesus returns, the Bible says he is not coming back as a lamb. He's coming back as a man of war. Says he's coming back as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so we need to make sure we're prepared for the Jesus that we're going to meet when we face him. And that doesn't mean that we can't be confident in facing him, knowing that our salvation is secure in him. But we sure need to have fear and trembling because even Paul has said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be sure, test yourselves, make sure you're really in the faith. You know, it is a fearful thing, the Bible tells us, to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, even when John, when we see in the book of Revelation, that he fell down as if he were dead. Well, John was the disciple, the Bible says, that Jesus loved. But when he saw him in his glory, he was like afraid because he's so holy. Who can stand before the Lord? You know, and this is what we're all going to face one day. I better move on to the next slide before we move off on a whole nother rabbit, rabbit trail. So we learn three things about God through Pharaoh. One, his power. He has the power to take away everything, our health, our property, our family, our life. And it helps us to worship God reverently when we remember his power. Two, his will. He has a right to use me to demonstrate his love or his justice or his mercy. He's the potter, we're the clay. And above all, it demonstrates his mercy. Why did God give 10 plagues? Why didn't he just wipe them all out and bring his people out in one fell swoop? It's because he's a God of mercy. He was giving them every opportunity. There was a progressiveness to those plagues. They didn't just start with the death of the firstborn son. They started with the water turning to blood. It was just a progressive thing to show not only Pharaoh, but all the people around the land that you're, this is God you're dealing with. You need to respond. There's also a parallel between the book of Exodus and the book of Revelation. And I think this is interesting. But six of the 10 plagues, the Bible says, come back again during the tribulation period. And it's the locusts, the hail, the boils, the death, and others. But it says in the book of Revelation that after the bowls of wrath are poured out on the earth, this is what it says, still men didn't repent of their sin. It's amazing to me, the hardness of heart. When the mercy of God brought the Hebrews out of slavery, Pharaoh was used to demonstrate the cost and Pharaoh suffered so that God's people would be free. And the amazing difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is this. In the New Testament, it wasn't Pharaoh who suffered. It was Jesus. And one last point I want to make here is why uh, Pharaoh rejected God's words. Um, and I think there are two simple reasons. And I think that they lie behind every rejection of God. And the first is that, and I already put these up, I actually clicked my slide too fast, is that he had no faith in God and he didn't take him seriously. When God said something, he didn't believe it. He had no fear in God's works, even though he had seen demonstrations of God's power to destroy and also to save, he never thought God was going to do it to him. 
So those two things can make a heart hard. And the Bible says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And if we're not careful, God will push us further down the road for not responding to him. And we see this in the New Testament as well. And here it is. They did not receive, and this is speaking of, this is Paul, and he's speaking of um, a time in the end times um, when people will be basically turned over uh, to their debased mind. And it says why. It says, because this is why. They did not receive the love of the truth. Now, so that doesn't say they didn't, receive, they didn't believe in Jesus. They did not love the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. That also is one of these verses where I was like, whoa, and you really have to scour the scriptures on this one. So God is going to send a strong delusion for people in the last days and cause them to believe a lie because they didn't love the truth. And then it goes on to say that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So we see that the truth, part of the truth of this gospel message is we, the Lord has said, be holy for I am holy. Do you believe that is the truth? Because we see here that if we don't love the truth, for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion. We have a call to holiness. We serve a holy God. The Bible says you're going to be slaves to either sin or righteousness, but you're going to be a slave. Choose this day in whom you will serve. You know, we have a choice to make. He told the Israelites the same thing. He says, choose life or death. And that's what we're doing here when we read this, God, this word of God. It is doing something and producing something in us. It's, it's sanctifying. You know, when we come to Jesus, when we accept him as Lord and Savior, we are justified by our faith. But our sanctification, if that sanctification never happens in our life, if we're not being sanctified by the word, then it actually just shows that the justification didn't happen because that wasn't authentic. That's what it shows. If you're not being sanctified in the word, you never got justified because if you're justified, you'll get sanctified. That's what the word does. Praise the Lord. And the last plague was death to all the firstborn sons. And this is where we learn what Passover is all about. They were instructed to go through their flock and find a perfect lamb with no spots or marks. And um, then they had to bring this lamb into their house to live with them for three days like a pet. So it became, I would imagine, if, that, if it's inside the house and it's a little spotless, cute lamb, it's probably like part of the family at that point after a few days. But So they got attached to it maybe, and they might have even loved it. But then they had to take that lamb and they had to kill it. They had to take its blood and sprinkle it over the doorposts. Such a strange thing, but why? You know, so that when God came to the house, if he saw the blood over the door, he would say to the destroyer, you can move on. Blood has already been shed here. Where God saw a life taken, he said the penalty has already been paid in that household. My judgment has been exercised there. The people in this house know how serious to take my words and my judgment because they took a life so that I would pass over. So the lamb over the doorpost was a substitute for a young boy in that house. 
Does that sound familiar? There's only one thing between me and hell, and it's the blood of the lamb, Jesus Christ. There's nothing else between me and God's judgment. There's nothing else I can say except you can pass over me with your judgment because Jesus has died in my place and his blood's already been shed for me. Jesus died instead of me. He bore my judgment instead of me. And so, Father, you can pass over me. That's all I can say. This is what it means to believe in Jesus, not just think he was a great person that we'd all like to know. It's to say his blood covers my sin. And it's not just to say I believe he lived 2,000 years ago and rose from the dead. It's to understand that he has a right to judge me and to take my life because I've abused it and I've sinned with it. But you can pass over me, God, because I'm under the blood of your son, Jesus and I also want us to notice that they had to apply the blood to their house. They had to do that. It wasn't enough that the lamb died. They had to deliberately take the blood and put it on their doorposts. If they'd neglected to do that, then the angel of death would not have passed over their home. It had to be over the doorpost. So though Jesus died for the sins of the whole world and anyone can claim you know, the power of his blood, only those who apply it will find that God will pass over them. And it only needed to be done once on that night. And then they were free and could now know God's mercy. But there was something else that they were told to do. After God had passed over them, they had to take the flesh of the lamb and nourish themselves with it for the journey. The Bible said the Lord wanted them to eat it all, which is a symbol of this that we need to feed on Christ. We need strength for the journey. We need bread for the journey. We need to take Christ with us, his word, to nourish our soul. And then you can walk. Then you can go out in the liberty that you were meant to have. You're not finished with the lamb when you claim the blood. We feed on him daily in his word, in prayer, and time with him. He's the living bread, the lamb of God. After the death of the firstborn son in every Egyptian household, Pharaoh in all of Egypt told um, Israel to go. They were ready for them to go. All of their, every household of an Egyptian had a, had a son die. So they basically were ready to push them out. And they left in a hurry because of that. And when we come to the point where um, we see later that Pharaoh even actually changed his mind and starts chasing after them. And so God parts the Red Sea. The Hebrew people walk through the seabed on dry ground, but the waters came back over the Egyptians, you know, drowning every single one of them. This was more than an escape from Pharaoh and his military. This timing corresponds, according to the New Testament, to our baptism in water. It actually came at the same point in their pilgrimage that baptism should come for us. They had already put their trust in the blood of the, uh, of the lamb that God might not visit them with his judgment. They were now set free from his wrath by the blood of the lamb and on their way to the promised land of blessing. But the thing God wanted them to do now was to be baptized. And that's why he led them through the Red Sea. First Corinthians 10, chapter 10, verse one and two up on the screen say, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So after we've believed 
in the blood of the lamb and we've repented and started our journey, a decisive break needs to occur between you and the life that you used to live. For the people of Israel, the Red Sea marked that break. It was the point that they had their last contact with Egypt and the people that had held them in their grip. Their journey to the promised land took 40 years of wandering in the desert, desert. But if you look on a map, a direct route should have taken less than a month. Some people say just two weeks. But because they mistrusted God, he led them around a long way. And sometimes we're in the wilderness in our lives because the wilderness is actually where you learn. And so I think we see that as well. We're coming to a close here. I've got three more slides, but these might be the most important ones that we're coming to. Um, the book of Exodus, it's not just an escape story. It's also an elopement. It is the story of a runaway marriage. The true story of a covenant made between God and his people. God was wanting to teach his people the right way to live. He took them to a wonderful sanctuary with a pulpit that he made himself at Mount Sinai. The first 20 chapters in Exodus are about how God taught his people to trust him. And the second 20 are about how he taught them to obey. This is the message that we have from both the Old and the New Testament. You've trusted him for salvation. Now obey him for blessing. And we need to learn that there is a barrier between us as sinful human beings and a holy God. It's because we're born into a sin nature as a result of the fall that there's this fence between us and God. So God, we even see here, instructed Moses to put up a literal fence many yards back from the edge of his pulpit. No man or animal could go through the fence or they would die. Our God is a consuming fire and fire is something you respect and you teach your children to respect fire. So they were being told to keep away from God's pulpit, which was like him saying, um, maybe it was like him saying, don't get over familiar. Have a healthy awe and respect of God when he's talking. Let him speak to you. They also had to have a mediator to go to God for them, someone who was worthy to go, someone who God had chosen. And it was Moses and, and even Aaron was allowed. Um, and the law was given through him as a mediator. For us, there's one mediator between God and men, and it's Jesus Christ. So God told Moses to tell them three times. He told them three times, I'm holy, keep your distance. Moses said, basically, look, you don't need to keep telling these people. You already told them once. And God said, go tell them again. One of the things we need to be reminded of is that God is holy and he needs to be taken seriously. The other uh, thing that happened was, of course, the fear of God. Moses told them, God came to you this way so that from now on, you'll be afraid of sinning against him. That is the fear of God. And that's the purpose of the fear of God, not the fear of speaking directly um, you know, to him, but the fear of disobeying what he says. Not the fear of God drawing near to me, but the fear of me running away from him. So they were learning the lessons of hol the holiness of God. And now the Israelites could learn the lesson of the holy being of the holiness of God's people, of how he expected them to live. 
because after all, he did call them a kingdom of priests. But the next scene is literally a wedding service because that's exactly what it was. God had, and I want to, I wonder, I wonder if you just answer that for yourself. Have you, did you ever realize that God actually had a marriage ceremony with Israel, that he married his people and was a husband to Israel? Well, we're going to see that now in the Bible too. And this is one of the most important things for you to grasp right now and even write it down as a, as a part of the story that's going to continue to unfold because this one's pivotal that he married them because we're going to see more that we're not going to unpack tonight, but this is the beginning. So like I said, this next scene is like a wedding and God had rescued them from slavery in order to marry them and in order to have a vowed covenant. And so the people of God, the bride of God are going to get married to God and they're going to agree to certain promises. They will say, I will. This is what's happening with this exchange of the Ten Commandments, and the people have to acknowledge, we will, Lord, I will. They're accepting a covenant. So a marriage always has a covenant at the heart of it, and a covenant has certain vows and promises at the heart of it. Let's read the scripture. Isaiah 54, 5, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. So this was God's marriage with his Israel on Mount Sinai. He set them free to serve him and he gave them their vows, the Ten Commandments. He's telling them what promises they will have to make. Here's the promises. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any graven images. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. You shall give one day and seven to him. You shall honor and respect your parents and so on. And what God is saying is this. I didn't set you free from Egypt in order to let you do what you want. I didn't redeem you to be free to do anything you like. I set you free to serve me, to be governed by me instead of being controlled by the Egyptians. Now you're coming under my will. God does not set us free from sin in order to be free to sin. He has set us free to serve him. And another thing I want to point out about the Ten Commandments is that the basis is redemption. And do you notice that God didn't give the commandments to Israel when they were in Egypt? He saved them first, and he said, now walk this way. God, in his great mercy, you know, he says, get saved first and then walk right. Don't let it be the other way around. That's legalism. He doesn't say, keep my commandments and then I'll save you. He says, I will save you, now keep my commandments. In other words, he wants grace first and gratitude second. He wants love first and law second. He wants salvation first and service second. The law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And we don't live under the Ten Commandments anymore. We live by them, not under them. We want to keep them because we love God. They say, you shall not. And we say, Lord, I don't want to anymore. In God's mercy, he brought us into a new covenant that isn't based on keeping the commandments, but on confessing our sins. That's the basis now, ongoing repentance. It's based on the new covenant of forgiveness in which God says, your sins, I will remember no more. The wine and communion is a symbol of the blood and of the new covenant for the remission of our sins. 
It's better than what they heard at Mount Sinai. We heard it at one of God's other pulpits, and it was the pulpit on Mount Calvary, the mountain where Jesus died. And so with that, um, I think that we've unpacked quite a lot, and I'm going to, to stop with the slides now and uh, just sort of open it up for a time of reflection over what we've gone through. And just, I want to, I'd love to hear, you know, what is, um, you know, what's in your heart after going through all of this. Uh, if anybody has something that you want to share, um, just before we even get into any other questions, because that, that certainly was a good bit. Praise the Lord. Um, one of the ways I know uh, when scripture says, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he'll guide us onto all truth. Um, um, Pastor, you said something that my wife and I um, uh, a while ago had discussed about, we had the same question, we pondered around the same thing and we thought a lot about it, about why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Because we know that God is a God who wishes that none will perish. And why did God harden his heart? And then the Lord revealed it to us that yes, uh, Pharaoh hardened his heart because he was set on doing what was evil before God's sight. And, and thereafter, uh, the spirit revealed to us just what he has revealed today. That's why it, it was such a great confirmation that if you already harden your heart, and this happens uh, to each and every one of us in our daily lives, if you've already hardened your heart, I don't care what that person does for you, you would look at it as evil and you will not accept anything he does for you. You will not accept his word. You will not accept his gift in good faith because you have already hardened your heart concerning that person. So I realized that from that point on, all of God's acts of righteousness hardens Pharaoh's heart because he had already rejected God. And this is what we had, we had spoken about. It's like, wow, this is amazing. And then uh, uh, secondly, I'm, I'm just amazed at, uh, the relationship you make between um, 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 everything that happened in the book of Exodus uh, really uh, showing us Jesus. You know, I, I think um, uh, that has been the root of why people don't read the Old Testament because they believe it's an old book and it's not relevant and everything. But, you know, as you, as you so said, Jesus said that search the scriptures because they testify of me. And that's the journey my wife and I are taking now where we are reading, we're trying to read the entire Bible in 90 days and it's been a blessing. Um, so when we hear this, it's such an amazing addition to what we are already studying um, to give us literally a good guide as to how to understand scripture, not to veer to the left or to the right, thinking that you know it all, but to really, really allow the Holy Spirit to guide you in the way we understand scripture. And today, I'm, I'm, every time I'm just so amazed because some of the things that we thought in the past and you reiterate it, it's just to really confirm the fact that when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide us unto all truth and he will never contradict himself. So I just wanted to thank God for that. And may God bless you so much for these wonderful teachings that are always simple to the understanding because the word says the entrance of his words is um, bringeth forth light and understanding to the simple. So we really understand the way you preach the scripture and you explain it. And it's truly, truly a tremendous blessing. And may God continue to bless you and increase you in wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Amen. Amen. To God be the glory.
Amen. Krista, that was awesome. We just are all really, really being so fed and poured into, and we thank you so much. And one thing I wanted to hit on that, that you, you know, just talked about Mount Sinai being the marriage ceremony, and I kind of dove into that. Um, but just to preface to that, um, like chapter nine, to know that I am the Lord, God said, so you will know that I am the Lord. And, you know, we talked about, I think mentioned last week, going from knowing about him to knowing him. And that know is knowing him intimately as in that marriage relationship and that marriage contract, God is, is covenant and king in Israel, his wife and his people. And all this marriage language, the Exodus is like an engagement arrangement between God and the groom and Israel as bride. The Torah is the wedding document. The Sabbath is the engagement ring. I will bring you into this land. And that's, that's marriage imagery um, and just the marriage covenant and the love that he is. And so going on, you know, he says, well, first the burning, burning bush, I am who I am, or I am that I am. And besides the marriage, he, he displays and explains himself by his names. He, he names himself as Yahweh, the divine presence, the power of the Lord, the personal name of the God of Israel. I am the self-existent one, El Shaddai. The Lord is a warrior. The, the Lord is his name. Um, so he is just displaying all of this, this part of himself. And, and then also, too, you know, the way that you explained um, just the, the blood and the salvation and, and the redemption and, and the order of the, the baptism, I mean, the baptism and then the redemption. And it's just such a beautiful love story. And it is a God who loves. And, and then the, the New Testament being fulfilled from the prophecy and the works of the Old Testament it's a glorious story and we can glean so much. So that was kind of a lot of my ahas and I just appreciate your teaching. Awesome. Amen. I was actually beforehand just reading in the scriptures before we started what you just said about his name being Yahweh. And it says, this is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. I love that. Is there anyone else that just wants to share um, randomly just anything that's on your heart or um, that you gleaned from, you know, any particular area that we've covered? I love the book of, this is Chantel. I love the book of Exodus so much, so much. And I love hearing God's voice. Um, and in his power, you can still, when I'm reading the Bible, I can still hear the love mm -hmm. in his voice where he says, bring the children, bring the children around this way, bring the children. You can feel the love that he has for his children so much. And, um, but the power uh, makes me tremble. And then I also love in the book of Exodus, the, the, uh, how Moses has to stand in between and Moses is like, what am I going to do with these people? You know, they just won't. And, and it made me laugh because I've in my life and, and I'm 
sure. I know I've had that too. I'm sure God up there sometimes like, oh, Chantel, what am I going to do with you? But I've had that with people in my life at times like, well, why can't they? What are they? So I love that. But it's just one of my favorite books. I love all the Bible, but I just love the book of Exodus. I love hearing God's um, powerful, strong voice and seeing his character, but also the way that he loves his children just touches me so much. Amen. Amen. And I do want to mention really quickly, we're three minutes to 830. And so um, we will be continuing on until nine o'clock, but um, our time uh, for fellowship is in 730 to 830. Um, and then we stand for an additional 30 minutes for those who can, but it's optional. So if you, if you have to go at 830, you're released, but otherwise you're welcome to continue on with us. So um, I did have, um, I had a question or two I'd throw out here. I was um, wondering what your thoughts would be on, you know, do you think God was upset with Moses for asking so many questions? And I'm wondering what we can, what can we learn about God's character from his responses? Because Moses, you know, didn't even want the task, but God had chosen him. So there isn't really anything Moses could do about it. And that's kind of a comforting doctrine to me. <laughs> but what does that say to you? Do, do you guys remember like how Moses was responding in his dialogue with the Lord? Any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, amen. Um, what I learned from that part is, you know, um, as Christians, even in our lives today, you see that we battle with the Holy Spirit when we ask to do something. We always have excuses. We always stand with excuses. Oh, I don't think I can go here. Oh, I don't think I can do this. Oh, I don't think I can wake up at five and pray. I don't think I can read my the whole Bible. It's too much. Oh, when I open my Bible, I feel sleepy. Oh, you start giving excuses without even trying. You start giving excuses without even like, even making that first step. Non uh, so one thing I saw in this is that Moses, with the excuses he was giving, it kind of made God feel uncomfortable, feel, feel a type about it, like you don't have trust in me, you don't believe that I'll be there with you, you don't believe that I'll hold your hand and I'll see you through, which that is what we ought to do as Christians today. When it's time to read your Bible, just believe God to lead you, just believe God to push you forward, because if you want to do it with your own strength or your own wisdom, you notice that you always fall. If Moses went in with just his own wisdom, with what he was taught, with the way he was raised, you know he will fall. But because God had chosen him and ordained him to do it, he had no choice. You cannot run away from it. When you're chosen to do something, you cannot run away from it. I don't care how long it takes. You will still do the job. That's the thing when it comes to God, because he's steadfast in whatever thing he's doing. So when he has picked you and said, oh, Hortensia, do this. I don't care how, how long it takes. I don't care how many excuses you give, how, how you pull it back, you will still do it. Moses was 18 years old when he was called to do, to do the job. At 80, we'll start giving excuses. Oh, my knees hurt. Oh, my back. Oh, I cannot stand. Oh, I cannot stand for too long to preach. Oh, I cannot walk for too long. Oh, I cannot drive. My eyes are blurry. I cannot drive at night. Like, you give all the excuses. But if you've been chosen to do that job, I don't care how old you are. God will provide and he will lead you to do it. So he kind of feel discouraged, kind of feel sad. Mm -hmm. And he didn't trust him to see him through it. Even when he told him, I will be with you. To the extent that Moses says, if you can't go with me, then I won't go. But still, you, he needed to know from the beginning that God would be with him as he has promised. Just have that trust. The one thing is the trust and the faith in God to do the job. Yeah. Amen. 
And don't you think that um, the Lord demonstrated such great patience for Moses in that? Because he really would have been perfectly justified in kind of being like, you know what, Moses, I've had enough of that. And I'm just not going to deal with that in this anymore. You know, but he doesn't do that. He, he understands that we're weak and sinful. And so instead of wiping us out, he tolerates us and encourages us. And I find that incredible. You know, I think that there's just really something for us to also glean as we're, that's one of the things I love about the Old Testament is we can really, we can see how God dealt with his people. And the Bible says that he is the same today, tomorrow, and forever. This is the character of God. This is the heart of God, you know? And so how he dealt with them is how it would go with us. You know, if we can put, we can put ourselves in those shoes you know, in different circumstances, maybe, but we can relate in here and we can really get to know the Lord in an intimate way through his word. You know, Krista, what I would like to say is that in, um, in reference to what you said and adding on to that, uh, it is, I believe in Christianity today, there is a lot of don't question God, don't ask him this, don't da, 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 da. Well, I don't believe that is the way God wants to do things. I don't. And God demonstrates that over and over again. Because how can you have a genuine friendship or a relationship if you can't relate to one another? God already knew that Moses came out of Egypt. He's wandered around for 40 more years. And he really is under the mentorship of someone else that serves a different God. So he already knew that he was going to have 151 questions. And I think that's why God tells us over and over again, he is slow to anger and quick to forgive. So he knows every thought before we think it. So when Moses shows up, and first and foremost, this is something that he has never even imagined possible. This bush is on fire. It's burning, but it's not being con consumed. Now, you all know my favorite expression. I know Moses had it first. What the world? What the world? And that, God said, it got his attention. He came over to look at it. And see, I believe that God was taking him from what the world to what the kingdom. And he had to understand there was a transition taking place. What the kingdom is going on around here. And God was displaying who he was. And so he began to have this dialogue. Because remember, maybe we haven't gotten there yet, so I don't want to give away too much. But eventually he goes on to say, mm -mm, Moses, I speak to face to face. Now I might send some other prophets a vision and a dream, but not Moses. So he began from the, in, in the beginning, offering an intimacy with Moses that says, I already know you don't understand this. So I'm gonna be patient with you, you know, and I'll let you know when you've tipped on my toes too long and it's time for us to move on. But until then, go ahead, let's have this dialogue because I want you to know that I'm accessible, that I understand it, I can relate because I'm gonna take you from where you are to where you're going. Now, it is a done deal because you've been assigned this assignment, but I'm going to work through your weakness so that the weak can say that I'm strong. I'm going to listen to what you say because we need to settle this thing before you get into Egypt because I'm already telling you, I'm going to tell you I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. 
And oh, by the way, they're going to receive you initially, your kin folks. But after they start suffering some more, they're going to get mad at you, brother man. And so we need to go ahead and deal with all this stuff right here, right now. So that in the midst, you will know that you know that I am God and I sent you. Amen. So let's deal with the foolish stuff right now. Go ahead and ask me your question because there's no stupid question. It's just one not asked. So go ahead and tell me that. And I, at one point, you know, because the Lord did it to me. When he called me in the ministry, I had my Moses moment. Some people can't wait to jump out. Mm -mm, no, 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 Lord. And I began to tell God all the reasons as to why. And at one point, I know he did me just like he did Moses. He said, listen stupid don't you think i knew all of that now some of y'all were would get offended but i was not i was raised in the army and it says keep it simple stupid so when god called me stupid i knew he knew he was talking to me amen he said look stupid let me in case you don't get this when i called you i knew everything about you but i have entertained and let you tell me what i already know like you were out there confused, dazed and confused, suffering from a nerve agent and didn't know that I'm God. So it's okay. I already know that. Now that we've had this discourse and we agree that I know everything you've told me, let's get to getting in what I'm asking you to do. All right. We're going to come back around this way anymore. Mm -mm, mm -mm. We're going to go ahead and settle this so that you will know that you know that I am God. I do not believe that God said she sinned against me. He didn't get angry with me. He didn't, you know, act like the Lion King. I know, you know, y'all just bear with me for a minute. You know, I'm not trying to bring in darkness, but remember that thing kept hitting a lion upside the head when he act? Yeah, he didn't bring out the rod and hit me with it, but he kept speaking. And even now in our moments, and we all have them, our moments of weakness, our moments of doubt, because we are tested and tried in many ways. He shows up and says, once again, Sylvia, it's still me to call you. Yeah, it's you. you, you you're going to be all right. Come on. Let's keep this thing moving. I believe that God wants us to share because we can't be transparent with him. Then who can we be? I think also in order to combat and conquer something, God has to define it for us. So what is the it in our lives that, that we need to combat and conquer? Uh, what does he want to combat and conquer through us? You know, what's holding us in lockdown um, because of the I am we are? And, you know, so, so what is it that's holding us back? What is it holding us in captivity? What is it that we need deliverance and healing from? You know, what is it that, that God is calling us through? And he is the God of signs and wonders and miracles. And he is the he is the I am because of the I am we are. And so, you know, we all have a ministry. We all have a voice in the kingdom. We all have callings and offices and work that God wants us to do. And if we'll look back in our past or, or even ask, seek and knock, Ask God to, to show us the burning bush moment. And the burning bush moment doesn't happen just one time. It can happen over and over and over. And, you know, be holy as I am holy. God is looking for leaders. He's raising up leaders during this time. 
in his army of intercession, in his army of the gospel, in his army of ministry. Um, and, and he's looking for people that will follow his word and his commands, uh, his precepts. He wants to display himself to his people. He wants to be intimate with his people. He wants his people to revere him. And it's, it's this ultimate, amazing, awesome, wonderful relationship with, with the God of this world, the God of Israel, our creator God, El Elyon, Elohim, El Shaddai, Yahweh, and us, the created, his, his children, his blood-bought sons and daughters, and how far we go with that is, is, is how we steward it. How are we stewarding our burning bush moments? Because if we're not stewarding it, we're missing out. If Moses had not stewarded that exactly that way, he would have missed out to have seen all that he saw. So we all have a place in, in God's plan. And how we steward it is how it's going to go. And, and it's just an awesome, wonderful thing to be, to be in this amazing relationship with, with the one true living God. I love what you're saying, Jackie. And I would just echo, you know, one of the things as we're talking about is it's a miracle and it's mind blowing to think about the God who is outside of time and space, the God who created the heavens and the earth and he created us. He, and we're going to not just see it in the life of Moses, but we've already seen it in, in a number of biblical characters. And we're going to see for the rest of the story God chooses to work through human agency. And at what? Like we're a mess. We are, and, and Moses is not the only one to doubt or struggle or oppose or question God in the stories that we're going to read. And God just deals with us, with us all. He, like Sylvia said, and like you said, Jackie, he just takes it in stride and walks with us. He wants to work through human beings to work his will into the world. He doesn't just use angels. He could have, you know, but he doesn't. He chooses to work through messy human beings and nothing could be messier than the story of, of Israel and the Lord. He marries this people and his son, Yeshua, comes through Israel in cooperation with that original intent. You know, the seed of the woman's going to crush the serpent's head. The plan of redemption for humanity comes through from God through humanity and through the cooperation of Israel and through this covenant that he's established with them. And they're going to co-labor with God. And now we, the, the heirs of faith who have placed our faith in Jesus, the Messiah, are that's how the New Testament calls us co-laborers. The spirit of God in us sanctifying us, as Krista talked about, justifying us unto the kingdom purpose, because the gift and the call are irrevocable. According to Romans eleven twenty five. 25, the gift and the call of God are without repentance. And so he calls us, and what we do with that, I like how you use that word steward, how are we stewarding that? He's called us, he wants to work through human agency. How are we uh, submitting, surrendering, laying out our lives for that purpose to have its fullness and a full measure of that workout through our lives. You know, the other part that I find really interesting is when we do a contrast and we look at it, because again, Krista, you started off with sharing that Moses spent 40 years in Pharaoh's house. 
He was trained on how to be not just a uh, prince, but also specialized in the army because Pharaoh had an elite army and you could not be the child of the of Pharaoh and not be military trained and equipped. And so God brought him out so much so that Jephro's daughters, when they saw him and they go home because he says, how did you finish it? Arrived so quickly. They said an Egyptian came and helped us out. So Moses had all of the characteristics and the attributes of an Egyptian at that time. God spent the next 40 years de-Egyptianizing him so that he could come into his humility. And when he saw the burning bush, he came at the burning bush in humility. And how I can relate to that is because I did spend so much time in the army and you don't make it and be successful without walking in a certain amount of pride and arrogance. It comes with the territory. God had to, again, take what he had learned in Pharaoh's household so that he could unlearn, so that he would now be able to be teachable and to be on, go on to be one of the only ones or the very few that God says he was the meekest of all. So he walked in a humility and that humility wasn't a false humility because you address that too. Sometimes we jump in the back seat, not because we want to ride in the back seat, but we uh, do those things because we're really hoping that you'll notice me in the back seat and, and all of those things. But Moses, God was stripping him of the things, the ways of Egypt, all that he had been educated and trained. He had been brought up around many gods because, as you said, with the, the plagues were all dealing with the various gods of the Egyptians. So, again, God takes him through that stripping process and in doing so now make him usable. That's what God does with all of us. In order for us, as Jackie said, to be good stewards, he first must strip us of the systems of this world. And he was raised in the Egyptian system, needed to be stripped in the wilderness, watching over those sheep. So all of that was in preparation so that he could be used to the fullest to become God's number one man. Amen. I love that, Pastor Sylvia, the way that you're talking about the military and military terms, and that really speaks to my spirit. And one verse that just so jumps out is, is um, Exodus 15, 3, the Lord is a warrior, the, the Lord is his name. And he took Moses and just everything that you just said, but he rode him as a war horse throughout Exodus. He, he was the war horse that God used. And, you know, there are times when God will ride us like a war horse. Are we ready? Are we prepared? Are we being trained, equipped? We're called, we're chosen, we're grafted in. And those are questions that we need to, to think about and ponder in the word with the Lord. But I love the military concept. That's awesome, Pastor. Thank you. And also, I, I would like to share something. Um, it's amazing what God was using to de-Egyptianize uh, Moses. I know you caught up mm -hmm. my new word, right? Yes, Amen. mama, I love it. I do it all the time. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. 
<laughs> he was training him to be a shepherd for 40 years. Mm-hmm. What did God, what did God do? Instruct Moses to do in the wilderness when the people refused to go into the promised land. And when they when they rebelled against him, he had to shepherd God's people when he took them out of when he when he uh, took them out of uh, uh, Egypt. You see, so God was not only taking away the systems of Egypt out of Moses, he was teaching him to be a good shepherd. And is it an irony that a lot of the people whom God loved were shepherds? It's, it's not an irony. David was a shepherd because David had to learn how to tend, how to care for people who would not always want to stay in one place, who would want to do A, B, C away from God's uh, commands and statute. They had to, God's shepherd had to learn how to bring people back to the fold. So it, it, it is a way for God to really uh, train his people um, to learn how to shepherd his people because God knows his people, you know, they will not always obey him. You know, some of them would want to do their own thing. But in order to be a shepherd, you have to exercise tremendous patience with his people to gently and, 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 and you know, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. You know, the, the staff of the shepherd is to bring the people back to the fold. So I was just really amazed by that. And, uh, and Jesus said he was the good shepherd. Amen. And when he spoke to Peter, he said, feed my sheep. Amen. So there is, there is something there that I, I believe is extremely amazing to see God uh, acting in different ways that, you know, if we just learn more about him, we would be just, you know, at awe at what he does on a day-to-day basis. Amen. God bless you. Amen. Because even in that quickly and, and uh, looking at that again, when you look at the nature and the characteristics of the Egyptians, they were self-centered and self-focused. God had to remove that so that he could go from it being. And I believe that's a process that the Lord is trying to work out in all of us because the system in which we have been educated and raised up in, whether it was the army or the corporate world, most of the focus is about you, 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 yourself and you. Amen. And God's focus is about them, her, him, someone else other than you. So it is a necessary process in order for us to be able to shift where it's all about me making it up the corporate ladder, all about me and ensuring that I can look good enough to get selected for promotion, uh, you know, and, and all of those things to now taking me out of the equation and it becomes about God and taking care of those sheep. God was redirecting Moses's focus for 40 years and in doing so, then at the appointed time, he had the burning bush um, experience. And the other thing is, again, um, God patiently heard what Moses had to say, and he listened. And how can we see the difference? Let's go to Luke. In um, in Luke, when um, when Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, Gabriel comes to speak to him and tells him what God is going to do. And he's questions. He questions what happens. He leaves out of there mute and can't speak for nine months. Amen. 
Glory be unto God. So there's a difference in a dialogue, wondering, and unbelief, and unseeing. I think it's amazing to think about what, you know, one of the things you're talking about, Sylvia, you know, God is de-Egyptianizing Moses, but, you know, the raw material, when you think about Moses' story, he he was born a deliverer and he kills the Egyptian out of his own strength. That's him being full of, he's going to deliver his way. Or the shepherdess girls of Jethro's, you know, he delivers them, right? He's a man of action. He's a man that takes things into his own hands, but he's delivering justice. His understanding of justice in the moment in 40 years, I think God's cooling him off, you know? And I, I just think about this simple fact, like God chose three murderers to write most of the Bible through. Moses, Paul, and David. And what does that say about God? And, and what does that say about us? And, you know, the zeal that Paul had persecuting the church, God redirects that zeal. He was always passionate about following God. He just didn't understand what he was doing. And it wasn't going to be the way that Paul was, you know, the raw material was there. Same thing with David. You know, our, his sins don't keep, they don't cancel or annul the plan of God or the purpose of God. And he, he will redirect and he will train and he will sanctify through uh, things. And I think that's a great comfort that we can take as we look at these stories of, man, the goodness of God prevailing, because if, if his plan was contingent on human beings being perfect, we would fail before we ever started. But he, his goodness and his plan and his mercy and salvation far exceeds dependency on us. Right. And so when he calls somebody, he's going to work with them and he's going to get them to the point where it's going to be irresistible. But it just may take 40 years in the desert. <laughs> To get and to I, that point. <laughs> and, I, and that's the great part, Jed, is that he does know. He does know. God knows everything about us. Amen. He knows, uh, you know, what and what we have the capability of doing and those things that are in us that can also cause our journey and our walk in order for there to be a struggle, but it does not disqualify us. Amen. God is the one that, that chose Moses' parents, and they both were descendants of Levi. And we know that Levi uh, in Jacob's sons was one of those that engineered what happened. So here's my, my, here's my summation of that. Anger married anger and produced anger. Oh, y'all will catch that in a minute. And therefore, God knew all of that. And ultimately, again, he was dealing with Moses from the framework because he knows from which we came to where he's taking us. Amen. There's a scripture I would like to share that Please. pertains to, to what we spoke on, um, but it's not from Exodus. Um, Isaiah 43, 1, where um, Abba says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. 
Amen. Amen. It's so true. You know, um, so I think I remembered one of the one of the points, and it's um, what Sylvia was saying was it's not all about us, right? That um, we we can, we really, I think, in our walk, come to this place of maturity, especially through the revelation of the scriptures, as we're being sanctified by the word, that we begin to realize there is a bigger storyline here than what we might have thought. You know, just it's more than Jesus went to the cross. Not that that's not magnificent and just beyond comprehension. That's amazing that he did it and that we are saved because of it. But when we dig into this word and start to see the unfolding of the word, start to see the revelation of the mystery, which is what we're going to be discovering by the spirit of God leading us through scripture, that we will see it is not actually about us. We're so blessed to be grafted into it all, but it was never about us to begin with. And do you know, and not this is not to leave on uh, a sad note at all, but the, do you know that the Bible actually says, um, Jesus said out of his own mouth, I did not come for anyone but Israel, for the lost sheep of Israel. But in that, so there's what we need to see is, what does he mean by that? And I think as we continue going through the word, we're going to start to see it, the significance of Israel in God's plan, because even though we'll come to a place where God scatters them because of their disobedience at some point down the way, he scatters them to all four corners of the earth. But then we'll see that there's a shift because we, we've got prophecies that we're going to look into that talk about how that there'll come a time in the last days when he will regather those scattered people, and that he'll actually uh, regather them into their own land that they had been scattered from. And we are actually living in that time. And so I, I just want to, we're coming to the close of the hour here. Um, and so we're going to be closing, but I just want to leave you with the anticipation of what is to come, you know, because I do know somebody mentioned earlier that we can, sometimes people think that the Old Testament's old, what's the relevance so much relevance, so much that we need to glean and grasp so that we can better understand what the Lord is saying to us in the New Testament, in fact. And actually, I believe when the when the light bulb goes off for, for many, because I know it, this happened to me, when I got the revelation of the mystery and I started seeing how God is not finished with Israel, how there's something happening here, and it's like huge um, it just, it will make you go back and read the Bible even again and again with new eyes, you know, because you'll begin to understand in context the one of the most important things that we can do when we read this word, which is why we're starting in the beginning, is we need to understand who is being spoken to and who is being spoken about. Because so much of the Bible has been hijacked away from the Jewish people, like in terms of like the application of the word. We've taken it, unfortunately, as the Gentile church, and we've like pushed them aside. And so a lot of what we needed to understand has, has really been lost um, in, in many churches. It has just been lost because it's not talked about. But if we continue in this word, that's what we're going to discover is the awesomeness of what the Lord is doing and how he's calling us to participate in his plans for the end times. So with that, um, I will ask if there's anyone that would like to, to um, say a prayer for our closing and um, just lead us in this time as we uh, end our fellowship tonight. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, Lord, we 
Thank you once again for a time such as this. Will you have guided your children to come and fellowship around your word, Father? You have done this, Father, so that your name will be glorified, so that we will know you more and more, and so that our relationship with you would grow even more, Lord. And we thank you for a time like this, Lord, because you gave us your breath of life. And without it, Lord, we would not be here. So, Father, Lord, thank you. Also, Lord, we want to thank you for your servants who availed themselves to do this good work, O oh Lord, to feed your sheep, O oh Father. I pray, Lord, that you would continue to bless them, Lord, and you would continue to increase them in wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And Lord, that what you have begun here, you will surely see it into completion, Father, all to the glory of your name, Father. Lord, I also thank you for those who were able to make it here today. I pray, Lord, that as they have come, Lord, I pray that may they have received what you prepared for them, Lord. Every sharing and every revelation that you spoke through each and every one of us today. I pray, Lord, that we will receive it in our hearts, O oh Lord, so that it may bear fruits. And Father, I pray for those who were not able to make it here today and who were, who were here last week, Father. I pray, Lord, that whatever hindered them from coming here today, that that will not be their portion next week as we gather again to fellowship around your word. And Father, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Because I know that you are a faithful God and you desire that your people know about you. Because your word says the people who know their God will be strong and they will do great exploits, Father. And such is our story, such is our destiny, because we have come here to gather around your word. I thank you, Father, for what you are doing. I thank you for what you have done. And I thank you for what you will do, because you, O oh God, are sovereign in all your ways. Lord, thank you. And all these things we pray through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, and with thanksgiving. And may all the saints say, amen. 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 Well, God bless you all. We'll see you next Monday night, Lord willing. Shalom. 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 Shalom.